theyeshiva.net. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and join me in warmly welcoming Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Thank you so, so much, my dear friend, Rabbi Forta, for your uh, very gracious and kind remarks and words. And thank you to you and the Rebbitson and the community for this very special invitation. It's always thrilling to join this community, world-renowned for its warmth, hospitality, graciousness, vivaciousness, vitality, Chabad of Aventura. Each time I've had the privilege of being here pre-corona, it was a truly meaningful and inspiring experience. And Mazel tov for the new building. How long are you here? To and change, okay. But for me, it's Shachiyanu, Vikimanu, Vihigiyanu, Lizmanazeh. Sorry, some of us are a little slow, so uh, it's a delayed blessing. But uh, you can blame it also on Corona. <laughs> it's really so meaningful, and thank you, everybody, for gracing us. And I know that for many of you, this has been a very challenging day. I know the rabbi just returned literally a few minutes ago from... Uh, a very difficult and challenging day from the funeral of uh, Vivian of blessed memories, Echernal of Racha. And I also want to take this moment to mention that this shir, this lecture, is in tribute to her sacred soul, her neshama, neshama, a soul lives forever, and a tribute to Joel, to her husband, and the three beautiful children, Alan, Jessica, and Stephanie. May God grant you the strength the kayach and the chizuk, the, the stamina and the empowerment during a very difficult and challenging era, era and period. But certainly you could see the support of a, such a special community and the embrace of so many brothers and sisters biologically and spiritually. May her soul be bound up in the eternal source of life and may she remain an eternal source of blessing, light, inspiration, empowerment for her husband, for her children, for all of her loved ones, for the entire special family, and for the entire community, everyone that knew them back from Venezuela and here in Aventura and everybody connected to this family. And may God comfort you. May you be comforted in this uh, terrible and very, very difficult loss and you, to use the words of the Jewish people, many thousands of years, chazak, chazak, v'niz chazek. Let us be strong and let us strengthen each other. Matovu manoyim shevet achim gam yochad. Because it's the power of brotherhood and sisterhood and love and family and community that allows all of us to be able to go through the tumultuous journeys of life with a little more strength, with a little more empowerment when we can feel the love and the comfort of the embrace of our friends and our family and our community. So I find it also a privilege to be able to be here such an evening and a tribute to such a special woman, a special mother, a special Jew, a special leader, a special wife, and uh, a, unique, a, a unique neshama, a unique soul. You know, we Jews are a funny people, right? We... Uh, 
if you were to ask me what's the uniqueness of the Jew, and I would say, we know how to cry and we know how to dance in the same sentence. That's the story of the Jewish people. <laughs> the day after Auschwitz, the Jewish people went to build Jerusalem. That's the story of the Jewish people. Maimonides writes these words, fascinating words, Moshe, Tikin lehem liyisrael, shivas yemei avelus v'shivas yemei hameshta. Moses instituted for the Jewish people seven days of grief and seven days of festivity, seven days of grief after loss and seven days of festivity after a wedding. And Maimonides puts it together. It's really the secret of Jewish existence, not to deny and suppress pain, but to understand that together with pain and comes joy and together with joy comes pain. We mourn and we grieve for the pain that we never forget, yet we celebrate the love and we celebrate the contribution of a life and we celebrate the continuity of a life through loved ones. And therefore, I think humor has been a major part of Jewish existence. When Abraham and Sarah needed to name the first Jewish child to ever be born, what would you name the first Jewish child? And the name that they chose was Yitzchak. And Yitzchak means what? Laughter. <laughs> Why would that be the name of the first Jewish boy? It's like almost like a joke. <laughs> the first Jewish joke was born at that moment. My name is also Yitzchak. Why, why is Yosef Yitzchak? So I have a special connection with, uh, with Jewish humor, right? <clears throat> Ruth Weiss was a very, uh, uh, very famous Yiddish professor in Harvard University. So she once wrote an essay, Why do Israelis lack a sense of humor? You ever tried making a joke with your taxi driver in Israel? It's not a good idea. Okay, he's going to leave you off on Kvish Misparshesh. And that traffic over there is pretty dangerous. And she says that the reason, I'm not sure I agree with the theory, but I liked it. You know, we like things that we don't agree with. <clears throat> you know, food, I don't agree with it, but I like it. <laughs> Unfortunately. So uh, she says that humor was a way of Jews dealing with their pain. Since they couldn't fight back physically over all the years of exile, so how did they fought, fight back? Through humor. They made jokes about it. She said, once they came to Israel, they actually learned how to fight back physically. They lost their sense of humor. <laughs> okay, interesting, interesting theory. Maybe there's other reasons. Maybe it's because Israel is a beautiful country, but it's in a pretty bad neighborhood. So uh, maybe that's another reason. Okay, I could find different reasons. But they understood, Abraham and Sarah understood that Yitzchak, the first Jewish boy, is going to have to learn how to laugh. The Jewish people are going to have to learn how to laugh. They're going to have to learn, and they're going to have to learn how to take their tragedies and their enemies and somehow turn it into a catalyst for life. So that's what we did. We took Haman, the worst anti-Semite in history besides Hitler. We took Haman, and we turned him into a hamantash. That's what we do. Now, I don't know why it's called a hamantash. Haman was not such a charming personality. He was, he was a horrific person. He wanted to kill every single Jew in one day. But that's what we do. We turn them into one of the most delicious and toxic Jewish foods there are. It's called a hamantash. We took Antiochus, we turned them into a latka. <laughs> then we took Pharaoh and we turned them into a matzo ball. And by the way, the common denominator is it's all carbs. In other words, which is horrible because in other words, they're still killing us. <laughs> Just in different ways. 
So I don't know who has the last laugh, but I do like the fact that we don't only write the obituaries of our enemies, we also eat them. And we make sure that they add to our fat reserve and our cholesterol and our, our special Jewish diet. But uh, in all sincerity, you know, this is really a major theme during this time of the year. And the theme that the rabbi uh, and the rabbi gave me this evening is the holiness of your sins. So when I sent the flyer to my wife, she said, wow, that sounds blasphemous. That sounds blasphemous, the holiness of your sins. But I love the title. So what does that really mean, the holiness of your sins? Really, what makes sins holy? We thought mitzvahs were holy and sins were not so, were not so holy. So, you know, they, there was once a woman who came over to me and she said, Rabbi, why, why? I want to ask you a question. I'm looking for a shidduch. I'm looking for a husband, but I need a perfect guy. I can't deal with, you know, second tier. I need top of the line. I really need a perfect man. Do you think you could find me such a guy? I said, maybe, well, you first have to define to me what's your definition of a perfect man. You know, one woman's perfect man is another woman's terrorist. <laughs> so she says, Rabbi Jacobson, I'll tell you, my definition of the perfect man is the first thing is he wakes up five o'clock in the morning. The second thing is he spends two hours a day in the gym. The third thing is he reads a lot. The fourth thing is he makes his own bed, cleans his own room, and takes care of his own breakfast, his own lunch, and his own dinner. He also does his own laundry. He also spends not more than nine minutes a day on the internet. He also doesn't drink. He doesn't drink. He has no social life. He doesn't have a nightlife. He's predictable, I always know where he is. And nine o'clock at night he's in bed. She says, that's my perfect man. Do you think I could find such a guy? I said, absolutely, yes. She said, where? I said, in prison. <laughs> so you know, my dearest friends, <laughs> you got it? Okay. <laughs> I know, it takes a minute. <laughs> But you could find them there. You could find them there. <laughs> there's different types of prisons. And there's different types of perfection. There's a perfection, there's a perfect man. But one that I find in prison. Which means sometimes perfection could be imperfection. And sometimes the greatest form of perfection is imperfection. Or as one Jew, some of you knew him, saying, he said, when I was young, I searched for perfection. Now, I search for the crack in everything. Right, Leonard Cohen. I search for the crack in everything. Because it's the crack that allows the light to come in. It's a profound statement. And it's a foundational idea in Jewish mysticism. The Baal Shem Tev, the great founder of the Hasidic movement, who lived in the 18th century, passed away 1760 on Shavuot, was once approached by a Jew who considered himself very spiritual and devout, but maybe a little haughty, a little holier-than-thou type. You know that type? You have them in Florida? <laughs> Not really, right? Okay. It's a holier-than-thou type Jew. 
and he came to the Boshebdev and he said, I think I'm worthy of seeing Elijah the prophet. Can you arrange it? Boshebdev says, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I don't arrange it. Certain souls have the merit of seeing Eliyahu Anavi, Elijah the prophet. He says, tell me what to do and I will do it. The Boshebdev says, I don't think it's for you. He says, of course it's for me. I am spiritually elevated, I'm a genius, I'm scholastic, I'm spiritually sublime, I'm heavenly, I deserve to see Elijah the prophet. Tell me what to do. And he nudges the Baal Shem Tov so much, the Baal Shem Tov gives him a prescription. Ten years of spiritual work. He literally gives him a schedule for ten years of deep spiritual work. And the Jew goes home and he works for ten years. Elijah does not show up. He is so distraught, he comes back to the Baal Shem Tov and he says, why did you deceive me? Like Jacob told his father in the Lamarimitani, why did you deceive me? Ten years I worked so hard spiritually. I worked on my midot, I worked on my disposition, on my characteristics, on my personality, on my attitude, on my relationships, on my service of God, on my piety. And I accomplished nothing. And the Baal Shem Tov looked at him with a lot of kindness and compassion. He says, you accomplished nothing? You accomplished a great deal. He said, what did I accomplish? The Baal Shem Tov said, you became a little more humble. That's what happened. And it's in humility, it's in vulnerability where the light comes in. Mistakes are allow what allow us to be human, to be vulnerable. And in that sense, they sometimes become the source of our greatest perfection. It's very interesting, very interesting, you know, the, during these days, those of you who say slichot during the month of Elul, the lucky Svardim, or the Ashkenazim, the unlucky Ashkenazim like me, who starts slichot only right before Rosh Hashanah. But don't worry, the Svaradim say slichot from the beginning of Ella, but they get to eat rice on Pesach. <laughs> it's quid per quo. We can't eat sushi Pesach. We have to have sushi with quinoa. That's called sushi. That's not sushi. It's almost a hamantash is better than that. But the Svaradim get to eat rice on Pesach. So everything comes with a reward. You wake up early in the morning, etc. In the Slichot and then throughout Yom Kippur and throughout the next month, we constantly repeat the 13 attributes of compassion. Yud Gimel Midot HaRachamim. Vayavor Hashem Al Panava Yikra, the 13 attributes of God's compassion. And it begins Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachum, Vechanun, Erech, Apayim, etc. And the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah, tractor Rosh Hashanah, page 18, says, Why do we start with God's name twice? Hashem, Hashem. Why not once? You don't have to call my name twice. I mean, when you're speaking to your husband, you have to call his name twice. But generally, once is enough, right? Yankel, David, Zundel, what's Hashem, Hashem? Once is enough. That was just a joke. I'm not talking about your husband. <laughs> Him you have to call three times. <laughs> I'm just... So the Talmud says, one is God's name before you sin, and one is God's name after you sin. Hashem is the name of compassion. There's compassion before you sin and compassion after you sin. The commentators say, why do you need compassion before you sin? I understand why I need compassion after I sin. Why do I need compassion before I sin? So one of the great Hasidic masters, his name was the Hirsch of Zidetshoif. And he says, this compassion you need before this, your sin is because before I sin, I sometimes feel too arrogant and too holy. And sometimes I need much more compassion than after I sin. After I sin, I know I'm human. I make mistakes. I could say I'm sorry. I could connect to people. But woe unto the person who never sins. Those of you who are married to people who never make mistakes. Anybody is married to such a guy? No. Or to such a woman? No. Really? Even to such a woman? Oh, you guys are going to get it tonight. 
Oh my God. But anyone who's married to a person who never makes mistakes, oy gewalt. We need a lot of rachamim. We need a lot, a lot of compassion. And the reason is because the uniqueness of a person is not that I don't make mistakes, not that I don't fall, not that I don't fail. I fail, I stumble. The question is what I do with my failure. What do I do with my darkness? Do I turn it into a springboard for growth? Or does it become a source of paralysis and depression and stagnation and despondency? One of my favorite stories is there was this couple that got married in 1940. And they decided to go on a honeymoon after the wedding. Yerach Dvash, a honeymoon. Where did they go? This is 1940. So they rented a rustic wooden cabin in the forest. And they went out for three days to this cabin. This would be their honeymoon. And they looked forward to be able to connect and enjoy each other and begin their life together on the right foot. And as they go to sleep the first night in this cabin, surrounded by a forest and wilderness, somebody decided to come visit them. It was a woodpecker. And the woodpecker would not let go. He decided he wants to join the honeymoon. And all night the woodpecker, woodpecker was pecking <laughs> its way through the roof, boring its hole. And finally it created a wonderful opening right on top of their heads. And right then God made sure to make sure that it starts raining. It wasn't just a rain, it was a historic downpour. And this poor couple was not wet, but drenched. Drenched to the core, chilled to their bones. To the point that this man didn't know what to do with himself. His wife had to calm him down. All day they spent trying to dry their clothes and dry their sheets. And when they went back to sleep the next night, exhausted, the woodpecker decided to visit for a second time. He was so annoyed, he took out his gun to shoot it. And his wife said, if you shoot this woodpecker, I'm done with you. You don't shoot a woodpecker. He had no choice. The second night, and of course, it rained again. And the hole was just bigger. Now, after three days, it was a colossal disaster. The honeymoon was over. They had to give up the cabin and go home. Now, imagine a Jewish couple's journey back home from this honeymoon. What would it look like? Right? He would turn to her and say, I told you the Ritz-Carlton, not a rustic cabin in the forest. He go to the Hilton near an ocean. Whose idea was this? And for the next 65 years, they would be fighting. Of course, the fight would take on many different topics and language, but the key would be this. You know, couples basically fight about the same thing for 60 years. It's just the words change. The topic changes, but it's the same fight from Shevabrach. It's usually what I have seen. And I could just imagine that drive home and how the quarreling and the dispute and the blaming and the accusation. But they actually did something else. It wasn't a Jewish couple. She turned to him and she said, darling, this was unbelievable. This was such a great experience. It was such a beautiful honeymoon. But now we have to figure out how and why it was beautiful. I know that it was amazing, but we have to figure out what made it amazing. And he said, I'm with you. And in the drive home, she turned to him and she said, you know, darling, you're a cartoonist. Why don't you turn this into a cartoon? And that moment, Woody Woodpecker 
was created by Walter Lenz. And 50 years later, a journalist interviewed the couple. And the journalist said, what would you consider the greatest night of your life? And they both said unanimously, the night that the woodpecker came to visit us. That woodpecker is responsible for our money, our wealth, our affluence, our fame, our influence, our renown, all the good work we did, all the entertainment we brought to countless people, all because of that woodpecker. That was the greatest night of our life. And I thought to myself, wow, how incredible. You know, they could have decided on the way home that that was the most miserable night of their life. And I promise you, that would have been true. But they decided together that it was the most beautiful night of their life, even though they didn't know how. And it really became. I understood what the Tzamech Tzedek said when, meant when he said, Tracht gut, wird sein gut. My very attitudes, my very think good, it will be good. My very attitudes, my very mental reactions to life, to a certain degree and maybe to a very significant degree, define actually the quality of my life. And the same is true in almost any area in life. And the same is true when we're talking about our own mistakes, our own failures, our own sins. They tell a story about the legendary uh, uh, leader of uh, IBM, Henry Watson. He had a manager, and the manager once made a colossal business error, which cost IBM a loss of $10 million. The poor guy was trying to help, but he made a terrible mistake. It was an oversight, $10 million down the drain because of him. And he went in the next day to Mr. Watson and he handed in his resignation papers and he said, listen, I wish I could pay back the company, I can't. The least I can do is just resign without any requests, no severance pay, you owe me nothing. I wish I could do something more. And I'm so, so sorry. He was, he was in tears. He realized what he has done to this company that treated him nicely. And he just said, I'm leaving and... You know, I, I could just thank you, and I, I don't have the words with which to apologize. They say Watson looked at him, and he said, where are you going? He said, well, I'm resigning. Instead of you having to throw me out, I'm just leaving. He says, leaving? Throw you out? Why would I throw you out? I just spent $10 million on your education. <laughs> You're not going anywhere after such an investment? <laughs> You're staying right here. It was a brilliant maneuver because such loyalty you can't buy. <laughs> and he became one of the most loyal and dedicated employees. You know, he dedicated, he gave his sweat and his, and his blood and his soul to it. But the message is so true about life. If something becomes an educational experience, then is it a mistake? Some of our profoundest Sources of awareness in life are the mistakes we make. This is so true, especially in the world of marriage and in the world of parenting. You know, we live in a time where parents are struggling a lot with children. Even in the beautiful Florida. In my shul, I met a teenager the other day. And he looks at me, he says, you know, Rabbi, why, why? It's not easy raising parents today. And I'm like, they're pretty resistant, aren't they? He says, yeah, they don't want to leave their comfort zones. <laughs> but you know, he was onto something. We're supposed to raise our children, but I want to tell you something. In the process, they raise us. And if you're open to it, you'll actually grow up.
and it's not such a bad thing. Now, I know, I know it's not the language we used to hear. Children have to be disciplined and educated and told what to do. You are the parent. She is the teenager who knows nothing. Of course. That's a sacred, sacred maxim. But sometimes they know all too much. Sometimes they feel all too much. Sometimes they're dealing with traumas that we never dealt with. We suppressed, we repressed, maybe even from previous generations, through epigenetics. And it comes out in their lives. They're so sensitive, they're so deep. And we could do one of two things. We can resist it, we can fight, we can become angry, we can become passive-aggressive, we can curse our fate, curse our lives. Or there's another approach. And the other approach is we shed tears. We feel our vulnerability. And we open ourselves up to be curious and inquisitive. And we ask not what our children can do for us, but what we can do for our children. We transcend the paradigm of my child is here to make me proud. Do you remember that one? My child is here to give me nachas. There's a conveyor belt. You put them in the beginning of the conveyor belt. It's called a bris, an upshanish, quiet till your bar mitzvah. At your bar mitzvah, the parsha will hear, but that's it. Say thank you to tati and mommy and grandpa, grandma, parents. Eat your sushi, dance with your friends next. We don't want to hear from you till you're dating a Jewish girl. <laughs> I once asked a rabbi, what's your mission statement in your synagogue? He says, it's very simple. I hatch them, I match them, and I dispatch them. <laughs> it was not Rabbi Forta. It was not. It was not. I promise you. But I did learn from him how to say something. Clearly and sharply, although not, not, on, not at the pulpit. And sometimes that conveyor belt gets stuck. It gets stuck. And it's so easy to get annoyed and frustrated. And we get into this place of self-pity and self-loathing. And these are the moments of vulnerability that open you up to your deepest growth. These are the moments that challenge us to our core. And they stretch us. And you know, in exercise, stretching is a prerequisite to wealth, to well-being. Stretching is a prerequisite to enhance your circulation, to expand your energy field. There is physical stretching, whether it's in yoga or Pilates or other exercises. But there's also spiritual stretching, emotional stretching, psychological stretching. And it's hard. Especially after all the hamantaschen. For me, I'm talking about me. And the latkes and the knedlach. It's hard to stretch. And the personal trainer, in this case, the personal trainer is God. He stretches me. And I don't want to stretch. I want to go back to bed. He says, but this stretch is exactly what you need to be able to fulfill your mission. To be able to bring your soul where your soul has to go to. And it takes a lot of humility. 
And we need a support system to be able to open ourselves up and be able to say, you know, maybe I acted 30, 40, 50 years from a place of ignorance. Maybe. And especially if my children, a, a, a mother told me yesterday two things. They were so moving. She says, you know, I have terrible, terrible wounds inside my life I never knew about and I never dealt with. And my child took me through the ringer and really made me aware of my life in a way that I could have never been aware. This child that gave me the hardest time I have to be forever grateful to for allowing me to reinvent myself and learning who I really am. And then I asked her, I said, you know, you have four children who are struggling emotionally. How do you deal with it? And you look so put together and integrated. And she told me these words. She said, before I walk into my house, I imagine that there's a big sign on the door of my home, hospital. That's what she said. I don't go into my house to be able to plop down on the couch and experience bliss. I say my soul was sent into a place where there are people struggling to bring them healing and bring them comfort and bring them solace and bring them light. And in that process, I also have a blissful experience. It was very moving because it was real. It was authentic. She was not living in La La Land. She was not naive. She's dealing with serious stuff. I happen to know the struggles of that particular family. The kids are very deep and very spiritual and very sensitive. And I don't know what they have, but they probably are carrying trauma of the last 2,000 years, like many of the children today. And it all comes out and they spit it out and here it is. And they're like, guys, here it is. And they can't deal with hypocrisy and they can't deal with lies and they can't deal with deception. And if the Jewish community will open itself up with humility, they will be the greatest sources of healing. They will allow us to graduate from an exile consciousness into a redemptive consciousness. Does any of this make sense? Is anybody angry at me yet? I'll continue. Oh, I'm just joking. There's an umbel, there's a very, very powerful. And fascinating observation in the Talmud. The Talmud says, this is a tract they dedicated to Yom Kippur. The Talmud says, quoting Reish Lakish, that when a Jew does tshuva, when a Jew repents out of love, the sins become transformed into mitzvot. When a Jew repents out of love, my transgressions become like mitzvahs. Very strange commentary. They say Rabbi Yitzchak of Bardichev, the rabbi of Bardichev in Ukraine, the holy Bardichevah, once saw a Jew on Yom Kippur eating a ham sandwich. Great choice for Yom Kippur. And the holy Bardichevah loved to find the good aspect in everybody and everything. So the man looks at the rabbi, the Levitzakabadid, and says, Rabbi, what do you have to say? He says, Wow, I'm jealous. He says, Why? You're hungry? He says, No. If you do tshuva, if you repent, do you know how many mitzvahs you're going to have? If all the sins become mitzvot, do you know how many mitzvahs you're going to have? 
I can never have so many mitzvahs. The guy was really cynical. He said, Rabbi, come back next year and you'll be even more jealous. <laughs> but the end of the story is that the person took it to heart and he changed his life. That perspective, Rebbe Yitzhak Barditchev looked at his sins and said, I'm jealous. I'm jealous if you're going to learn how to transform your darkness into light, your bitterness into sweetness. But what is the mechanism of that? What does that mean? I don't understand. A Jew who's a tzaddik, a Jew who's righteous, and their whole life they lived according to the blueprint of Torah and mitzvahs. For them, a sin is a sin. And somebody who sinned their entire life, and then they do tshuva at the age of 79 and a half, or even better, wait till 98, why not? And they do it out of love. Suddenly, all my sins <laughs> become mitzvahs. It seems so unfair. The Marsha in the Talmud says, nisker, the sinner gets such a bargain. <laughs> I'm a chayim. True, the Talmud says you can't plan it this way. But if you did it already, cash it. But it doesn't seem fair. It's like imagine a person who went to the gym every day, exercised an hour a day, did brisk walking, ate healthy. And they're fine. And then another person, their whole life, they ate every piece of garbage in the world, every kiddish. They were the ones who finished off all the leftovers. The babke, the cheesecake, the herring, and the schmaltz, and the oil, and the kichlach, and the sponge cake too. You know those people? And then at 81, he decides he's going healthy, and suddenly you say, all the unhealthy food is transformed into kale, and spinach, and tofu, and barley kernels, and wheat juice, or celery juice. Come on, come on. I don't mind if the guy lives, but it's not fear. How do sins become mitzvahs? It's a powerful, powerful question. What does the Talmud mean? So the Alter Rebbe, the great founder of Chabad, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, in his classic work, the Tanya, in chapter 7, the seventh chapter, gives such a moving and vulnerable and beautiful explanation. And he says, and this is the theme we're developing here tonight, and he says that sometimes your deepest love can only be experienced from the deepest vulnerable mistakes. Sometimes it's the very distance, it's the very pain, it's my stumbling blocks, it's my failures that can become the greatest springboards and catalysts for the deepest forms of awareness and education and growth. In the metaphor he gives, there's nobody who enjoys a cup of water like somebody who has been in the desert for three days in the Florida humidity, parched, searching for hydration. And then after three days, somebody gives me that cup of water. The glee, the zest, the passion. He says it's also true emotionally, psychologically. When I realized that for so many years, I lived with error. I made so many mistakes. I was stuck in my traumas. And it may completely not be my fault, but I can acknowledge that all of my reactions were coming from such a restricted self-image, 
part of my brain was shut down. My amygdala, my reptilian brain prevailed over my mammalian brain, over my prefrontal lobes. There was no executive functioning. All my reactions are coming from a reptile trying to survive. Basically, I was a lizard who looks like a man. And you know about the bar mitzvah, right? The boy was having a bar mitzvah. And he comes to his mother and he says, Mommy, I want to talk about where we come from. And Mommy talks about the beautiful family lineage. And he says, no, no, the beginning. How did it begin? She said, how did it begin? God created the world in six days. On Friday, Rosh Hashanah, he created Adam and Eve. For whatever reason, they decided to have children. I'm not sure why. And here we are today. He goes to his father. His father is a very proud graduate of Stanford University. He says, Daddy, I want to talk about our lineage. Where do we come from? And Daddy says, it's been 15.3 billion years since the Big Bang. But basically, there's a very intricate process of evolution. We have evolved from the chimpanzees with whom we share 99.5% of our DNA. And where did the chimps come from? They came from the monkeys and they came from the gorillas and we, they all evolved. How did it begin? It began with an explosion of gas and bacteria and prebiotic soup or prebiotic cholent. <laughs> and she comes back to his, he comes back to his mother and says, Mom, I'm very confused about my mitzvah speech. She says, why? She says, you tell me we come from God, Adam, Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Dad tells me we come from chimpanzees, gorillas, monkeys, gases, and bacteria. What am I supposed to say? She looks at him and she says, son, there's no contradiction. Your father was talking about his side of the family. <laughs> And I'm talking about my side of the family. <laughs> but when I can, we all have two sides in the family. I don't know if in your case, if it's your husband, your wife, your mother-in-law, I don't know. I don't get involved in local politics. I have enough where I live. But we have internally two sides of the family. And when I can become aware of that, I can't change everything, but I can become aware of my reactions. I can become aware of my addictions. I can become aware of my wounds, of my pain, of my insecurity, of my triggers, of my defenses. Says the Alter Rebbe Rabbi Shnei Zalman, there's nothing like the awareness, like the attachment that is created from failure. The yearning, the longing that some nafshi, come alecha besari, be'eretz tziyav ayev blimayim. Those are the words from Psalms which he composed a song on. Tzama, you know that song, lecha, my soul thirsts because it lives in a parched and barren soil without water. So let's put it this way, you know, every mitzvah, every mitzvah in the world has what's called in the Talmud, in halacha, in Jewish law, hechsher mitzvah. The preparation for the mitzvah. There's no mitzvah you could perform without preparation. For example, you want to have a Shabbat meal, right? Somebody has to cook. Yeah, yeah, the food does not show up. Ab your wife doesn't say abracadabra could do, and the food shows up. Somebody got to cook. You want to blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah? The shofar doesn't just fall down from the ceiling. A ram's horn has to be. 
retrieved and hollowed out. That's how you can blow shofar. And if I want to make kiddush on Shabbat, somebody got to press those grapes and produce the wine and bottle the wine. We don't always see that in today's world, but every mitzvah has hechsher mitzvah, a preparation. I can't just shake the lulav and sukkahs. I have to get a lulav. I have to cut the branches of the palm. I have to cut the citrus. I have to find the willow. I have to find the myrtle branch. I have to cut it. Every mitzvah needs preparation. There's one more mitzvah called tshuva, repentance. What's the preparation for tshuva? <laughs> How do you prepare for repentance? What's the heksha mitzvah? What's the prerequisite for repentance? Anybody? Very good. Sin. <laughs> Sin is the preparation for repentance. But that doesn't make sense. Because if I'm sinning, I'm not preparing for repentance. I'm sinning. So how does that work? And the answer is, sin is not a preparation for repentance. Sin is about sin. But, but, here's how it works and here's what quantum physics and Kabbalah converge. But, when I repent for the sin, and when the sin brings me to a deeper awareness, you know what happens? Retroactively, the sin is redefined into a preparation for repentance. When I sin, I sinned. But when the sin brings me, when my mistakes, when my failures, even when my betrayal brings me to a deeper place of awareness and connection that I could have never had without these mistakes, retroactively, the mistake is redefined as a preparation for the love. The sin is now the heksher, the beginning of the repentance. So the sin becomes a mitzvah. <laughs> the sin becomes the prelude, the intro, the catalyst, the springboard, without which I could have never done the mitzvah. So the tshuvan of love redefines the sin. We'll take this one step deeper. And for 60 seconds, I'm warning the ADHDs here. Stay with me. Okay, ADHD stands for attention deficit. Hey, donuts. <laughs> it's going to be a 60-second presentation. So get, bear with me. The Arizal, the great Kabbalist, Rabbi Arizal asked the question. If God runs the world, how do we have free choice? Who runs the world, me or God? If God really orchestrates everything and there's divine providence even over a leaf, as the Baal Shem Tov said, where the leaf is going to end up, the leaf that fell off the tree. So who's running? Am I making the choices? Is God making the choices? For example, you made choices in your parenting. Who decided you should make those choices? Your mother? Your mother-in-law? Your trauma? Your husband? Right? Your therapist? Who also has trauma? Yeah, yeah, therapists have trauma, rabbis have trauma, yes, yes, sorry. I know I'm a rabbi, I got trauma. <laughs> or God, who made this decision? And you say, oh, don't blame God for everything. So that result teaches something amazing. He says there are parallel universes. There's a universe in which you choose. 
There's a universe in which God chooses. In our universe, we make choices. In a parallel universe, God makes choices. Those universes may remain completely separate from each other. When I do tshuva for my mistakes, I bring my universe and I align it with God's universe. And then it turns out that who did it? God did it. And if God did it, it was a beautiful thing. You get it? I make the choice. I made it. Don't blame God. <laughs> Deal with it. But God also makes his choices. They happen to be the same. But shh, it's a secret. And the two worlds are, are parallel, but they exist in different frequencies. When my mistakes bring me to a place of deeper repentance and deeper awareness, my mistakes bring me closer to God. Closer to truth, closer to love, closer to authenticity. The two worlds become one. And then suddenly you see the choice I made 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It wasn't my choice. It was God's choice. If it was God's choice, it was a mitzvah. God is not sinning. But that can only happen after my mistakes bring me to a place of deeper awareness. Now you're saying this is paradox. That's exactly the point. <laughs> It's the paradox. And that's why So in our very real lives, what does this mean? This means there's a concept and a reality called Jewish guilt. Anybody ever heard of it? Somebody once asked me, Rabbi Jacobson, what's the definition of a Jew? I said, somebody who feels guilty. They said, really? I said, yeah. In fact, every Jew I know and I ever knew felt guilty. In my whole life, I met one Jew who was guilt-free. And he's still in therapy. <laughs> he wants to know why he doesn't feel guilty. One guy, one person I met. No guilt, and he can't forgive himself. <laughs> they say when a Jew makes a fist... The next step is There's something deep in the Jew. Now, there's something very beautiful about it. You know what? We can actually blame ourselves and reinvent ourselves. There's cultures and tribes that live right around Israel. They have an opposite philosophy. Something goes wrong, you blame the Jews. You blame Israel. What's the difference? If I'm always blaming you, I look to you to fix my problems. If I could look inwards, I can fix my problems. It's actually very empowering. That's why we focus so much on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, introspection, Cheshbon HaNefesh. These are good things. These are healthy things. But like every healthy thing, it has side effects. And the side effects is... People often live in a very guilt-ridden world. You see Jews, they schlep around washing machines on their shoulders. You ever see them? They walk, you see their face. They're carrying the burdens of the world. First of all, they have to decide what's going to happen with Ukraine. <laughs> Second of all, they ones who have to decide what we do about global warming and about climate change. It's a very serious stuff. What do we do about the glaciers in Antarctica? They're not simple questions. And every Jew is responsible to answer those questions. What Judaism teaches is as follows. There's another way of looking at it. 
I can go back to my life. I can look at my life. And every day that I live is an opportunity to learn more, to discover more, to become more aware, to be more humble, to be more curious. And when I become more curious and I become more aware and I open myself up to deeper truth, I also know that tomorrow I'm still going to discover things I don't know today. And when I discover that, I say, you know, maybe I could have done things so much different. If I would have known what, yeah, then what I knew now. We all look like, we all think like that. And sometimes you could just wallow in endless despair and guilt. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of doom. But what the Talmud, what the rabbis were teaching us is that we have to be able to also expand our paradigms further. And say, you know, ultimately you are one with God. The Baal Shem Tev said, God is Alts and Alts is God. God is everything and everything is God. And that means even within my narrow awareness and even within my restricted self, which allowed all of my mistakes and my dysfunctionality, the divine presence was there. Repinchas of Karetz, the holy Repinchas of Karetz, whose yard site is today, he was one of the greatest students of the Baal Shem Tev. And he says, why do we say a Shamnu in the plural? Asham knew, we sinned, but God knew, we betrayed, Gazal knew, we stole. What's we? I. Imagine your wife, your husband comes home tonight to make a confession. And he looks at you in the eyes and he says, honey, we made a mistake. We insulted you. We denigrated you. What we said Shabbos by lunch in front of your siblings, what we did was wrong. Oh, get out of the house. We? Who's we? Who's we? You and your trauma and your wounds and your insecurity and your mishagasin and your idiosyncrasies and your arrogance and your narcissism and your addictions and your compulsiveness. Who's we? Did I answer well? Yeah. Good. I can do this even better for pay. I'm just joking. Your husband is a good guy. I love him. What's we? The first prerequisite for confession is take responsibility. I, I made a mistake. I said something inappropriate. I was insulting. I was hurtful. I am sorry. I, Ashamti. No, we, we, we. What's this we? I know in the game of we, there's two eyes. But that's only in our generation, because our generation, everything is I, 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 iPhone, iPod, iPad. We finally have a game of we, we spell it with two I's. <laughs> but in the olden days, we was we, we, W-E. Or as the Chinese do it in their own way. And Repinchas of Karet says something magnificent. He says, you know, when we say we sin, you know who the we is? Who are you talking to? You're talking to God. And you're saying, Hashem, you know the truth. We did this together. Of course, I'm responsible. But you know that you're also a little responsible. Because this boy who was molested at three, or four, or five, or six, this girl who was molested at seven, or eight, or nine, who was ultimately responsible allowing this to happen to them? Which, yes, caused half of their brain to be shut down. Caused trauma to define their life.
cause them to be scared of relationships, cause them to be timid and run away and fight or flight or freeze or fawn. Who ultimately allowed this to happen? You have the perpetrator, but wasn't God part of this process? Yes, I made mistakes. I made bad choices. But you know Hashem. Hashem knew, but God knew. You were there. Why is this so important? It's so important because then it tells me that it's not a story of hopelessness. It's not a story of doom. If God was there, that means there is some light there. There is some purpose. There is some mission. There's something that can be transformed. Something could now be redeemed. I cannot tell this to somebody else, but I could tell this to myself. You can't tell this to somebody else. You can tell this to yourself. How am I going to use my experience? How am I going to take my story, my narrative, and instead of turning it into a story of victimhood and anger, can I turn it into a story of unprecedented growth and rejuvenation and leadership and inspiration? Can I become a source of light and hope for other people who are struggling only because I can look them in the eyes and say, I know exactly what you feel like. I feel it. I've been there with you. You can truly be an empathetic witness. And in that process, my very mistakes, my very ill-fated decisions can become my most powerful tools of growth, of healing, of tshuva. My dearest friends, you know? Oh. A thoughtful young woman. There's a 93-year-old Jew. He lives in Petach Tikva in Israel. His name is Yaakov Frank. Rabbi Yaakov Frank. Not long ago he spoke. And he shared a personal story, a personal experience. It left such a profound impact on me, my dear friends. Yaakov Frank was born in August 1929. His grandfather, his father's father, was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem a Jew known as Reb Tzvi Pesach Frank. He was the rabbi of Jerusalem for decades. He was considered one of the greatest Torah scholars of the last generation, and his scholarship was only matched by his loving and affectionate heart. Truly, truly special Jew. Pious, kind, graceful, humble. A really Reb Tzvi Pesach Frank. He wrote many works, Hart Tzvi. A great authority of Jewish law. And Yaakov Frank was his grandson. Reb Tzvi Pesach Frank had a relative who was getting married and having Shabbat Sheva Brachot in Hebron, in the city of Hebron, August 24th, 1929. And he planned to go with his wife, but the Shabbos before, his son had a baby. So the bris would be next Shabbos in Jerusalem. So he canceled his trip to Hebron so that he could be by the bris of his grandson, Yaakov Frank, who told the story, and he held him the sandak. What he didn't know is that that Shabbos, 
was the great pogrom, the horrific massacre of Hebron. August 24th, 1929, the 17th and 18th of Av, Tafresh Peites, 29, 69 Jews were axed, tortured, mutilated, men, women, and children, including 24 yeshiva students from the Slabotka Yeshiva Knesset Yisrael that came from Lithuania, from Slabotka in 1924, made Aliyah with Reb Nosson Finkel, the altar from Slabotka, settled in Hebron, the famous Slabotka Yeshiva Knesset Yisrael. 24 of its students were murdered. Reb Tzvi Pesach Frank was saved because of this grandson's bris. The Arabs began a pogrom. They used, they didn't have live ammunition, they used axes, machetes, knives, daggers, spears, swords, bricks. It was horrific. 69 Jews were murdered over Shabbos. And the Jews did not return to Hebron till after 1967. From 1929 till 67, when Israel liberated Hebron, our patriarchs and matriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Sarah, Rachel, Leah, remained orphaned from any Jew that was there. Jews were gone from Hebron. One of the boys who was murdered was in his young 20s. He was a kid from Philadelphia. His name was Yaakov Berman. Yaakov Berman grew up in America in the 20s. His father was affluent and politically connected and a leader in the Jewish community. And Yaakov Berman wanted to study Torah seriously. But in America in the 20s, there were no yeshivas. There was barely two or three day schools. Every Jewish child went to public school. Almost every Jewish child. And he wanted a real yeshiva. So he went to Palestine under the British mandate in 1929 to study, or 28 to study. And he did amazingly well. But his parents in Philadelphia heard in 29 there were a lot of riots and pogroms. A Jew was killed in Tel Aviv. Jews were killed in Jerusalem. So they sent a message that Yaakov should come home to Philadelphia because they're afraid. The head of the Slabotki Yeshiva was a Jew named Reb Moshe Mordechai Epstein. And he felt horrible that this boy should leave because he saw him as a future luminary in the Jewish world. His mind, his heart, he was really, he was a great young man. And he felt it would be such a pity. He would go to America, he would be lost to assimilation. But what can he do? The parents want their boy back. So he reached out to the rabbi of Jerusalem, Reb Tzvi Pesach Frank, who was world-renowned, and he asked him, please write a letter to the rabbi of the community in Philadelphia to tell the parents that Hebron is safe. Because the one who ran the bank of Hebron, and he was on the city council, was a man named Rebbe Eliezer Dan Slonim. He spoke perfect Arabic. He was in very good relations with the Arab leaders of Hebron. And things were very calm in Hebron. So your son is safe. And the rabbi of Jerusalem, Rebbe Pesach Frank, sent that letter to the parents. And they agreed to leave their son in the yeshiva. A year later, he was murdered. That Shabbos morning, he was davening in Slonim's house. The Arabs went into the house, killed 24 people, including him, and then killed the other Jews. And Reb Tzvi Pesach Frank, who was supposed to be in the massacre, but he was saved because of the bris, could not forgive himself. He felt responsible for the death of this young man. The parents wanted to take him home to Philadelphia. He intervened. He asked them to leave him. And the boy was now dead. 
And he was a very sensitive heart. He could not forgive himself for what he did. Of course, it was unintentional. Of course, he didn't know what's going to happen. But he said to himself, why did I have to mix in? Do I know? Do I know what's going to happen? Why did I have to mix in? You can understand he was a real spiritual man and a great leader and a great rabbi. And he just, he felt that he has blood on his hands. Unintentionally, he has blood on his hands. Life went on. Rav Cook passed away. He became the rabbi of Jerusalem. This baby that was born a week earlier, Yaakov Frank, who's telling the story, is serving in the IDF reserves. Miluyim. It's 1960. That's 30 years after the massacre. 39, 49, 59, 31 years. Yaakov Frank is a man of 31 years old. He's a reservist in the IDF. He has to go to the reserve, to the army. And it's December 1960. And they're training one night. And suddenly there's a downpour. There's a downpour. And they can't continue training. They go into the trenches. The subterranean trenches. But the trenches are all flooded. And the commander of the platoon, the Mefaket, looks at them and says, listen, this training can't go on. This is a crazy weather. Just go home. <laughs> but before he gave them the command to go home, they were for hours in the trenches. Because they were outdoors. Outdoors on a base training. So they're in the trenches. And Yaakov Frank, sharing the story, he says, it happens to be that in the trench where I was, in the pit I was, there was another man who was also in the reserves. I never met him before. And we introduced ourselves, and I said, my name is Yaakov Frank. He said, oh, your grandfather is the rabbi of Jerusalem? Yeah. And who are you? He says, I'm a historian. What period? He says, I'm a historian of the early history of Israel and Zionism and the state of Israel when it was under the Brits. And we're talking in the trenches. What do you do in the trenches? Two o'clock in the morning when you're flooded. What do you do? You schmooze. So I start telling him when I was born, I was born the Shabbos before the massacre and my grandfather was saved and my grandfather was not killed, but he still feels guilty 31 years later because Yaakov Berman was killed because he told the parents they could leave him in Hebron. And the man looks at me in the trenches and he says, do you know the other side of the story? He says, what other side of the story? There's no other side of the story. So of course there is, you don't know? He says, no. He says... So let me tell you the other part of the story. The parents got news in Philadelphia about what happened. Their son was murdered. The grief was unfathomable. I don't have to describe the grief of parents who lose a child, especially so far away and under such circumstances, especially when they knew they wanted to bring him home. The father was politically connected. And he made a ruckus in the State Department because he maintained justifiably that the British were guilty because the Arabs weren't using live ammunition. And how did the pogrom end? The British commander came and started to shoot in the air, and the rioters ran away. If he would have done that in the beginning, come and just shoot in the air, they would have escaped, the Jews would have been saved. So he put the blame on the British, and he made a ruckus, a commotion in the State Department. What is happening is Jews are being slaughtered, and there's no oversight, and the British are accomplices to the perpetrators. And because of that, there was a lot of pressure, and the British sent a new high commissioner to be able to oversee and examine everything that's happening in the Holy Land in Palestine under the British mandate. They sent a man by the name of Arthur Wakup. Wakup. 
Arthur Wakap. Or in Hebrew, they write it, Vav Vav Aleph Kuf Aleph Fe, Vokaf. He had a military past. In 1931, he started his tenure in Israel as the one in charge. And he started to travel the land. And he fell in love with Israel. And he fell in love with Jews. And he fell in love with Judaism. And what did he do? The first thing he did is, he got rid of the white paper. The white paper was the infamous document that limited emigration to Israel from Europe. Very few Jews could come. He got rid of it. From 1931 till 1937, when he served as the High Commissioner, Arthur Wakov, the Yishuv in Israel more than tripled. From 192,000 Jews who were there at the time, it was close to 400,000 Jews at the end of his tenure. From 4,000 acres of land, they had close to 100,000 acres of land. Businesses were building up. The economy for the Jews became better. And for those years, immigration was open. Hitler came, became the chancellor in 33 in Germany. The German Jews who wanted to leave could go to Palestine, could go to Israel. Jews from Eastern Europe, close to 400,000 Jews were there. In 1937, Wakaf was uh, left or was fired. That's a separate story. So this man looks at Yaakov Frank and he says, nothing, nothing, nothing can justify or rationalize the death of one person from our perspective. But I just want you to realize that Yaakov Berman's father is responsible for bringing in Wakaf. And I just want you to know that the two, three hundred thousand Jews who made Aliyah in the 1930s would have all been murdered by Hitler. They came from Poland. They came from Germany. That boy was killed. But because of him, hundreds of thousands of Jews made it to Israel and survived. I want to tell you something else. In 1948, when Ben-Gurion established the state in May, and they had the War of Independence, and the Arab armies attacked Israel with a vow to destroy the state the moment it was created. Israel fought back. How many Jews were there in Israel at that time? 600,000 Jews were there. Had Wakaf not allowed emigration, they would have been with 100,000 Jews fighting back, not 600,000 Jews. The state may have not survived. So I just want you to know, the story is painful, but just know that that Slabotka yeshiva student who paid with his blood, because of him, Hundreds of thousands of Jews were saved from Hitler, and the state of Israel exists. Yaakov Frank is in the trenches, and he gets the chills. He says, you know, my grandfather is living with a stone on his chest for 31 years. He can't forgive himself. He says, I never knew this. We never knew this. He says, well, this is the truth. You can investigate it. You could verify it. The commander sends them home. He goes home drenched, exhausted. They've been up for nights. And he tells his wife, I'm getting dressed and I'm going to Jerusalem. I have to go visit Zayde, Saba. I have to go visit my grandfather. She says, it's Thursday morning. You go there on Shabbat anyway. I have to go there. I have to tell him something. He travels. He comes to his grandfather's home Thursday. His grandfather looks at him. His grandfather was 87 years old. He pays to Frank. says, Yaakov, you're supposed to be in the IDF. He says, yes, but we had a downpour. We were in the trenches. 
They released us home. So I came to him and said, why did you come visit? You come in Shabbat. He said, I have to tell you something very special. He says, first a cup of tea. <laughs> and he puts up the kettle on the stove. Says 1960 Jerusalem. Makes his grandson a cup of tea. And he says, Yankala, sit down, tell me. And Yaakov tells him the story that he just heard in the trenches about what happened after the, the aftermath of the death of this boy with Wakaf. And how many hundreds of thousands were saved because immigration was open, the gates were open, and Israel had some significant numbers of Jews in 1948, 600,000. And by the way, 6,000 Jews were killed in the War of Independence, which is 1%. 6,000 Jews were killed in 48, but they won, and Israel came into existence. And Reb Tzvi Pesach Frank, 87 years old, 31 years saying, Ashamnu, because he felt that he has blood on his hands, started to cry. And he said, listen, I would have never told you to leave your wife and little baby and come here after a grueling week of exercises and training. But I could never, ever thank you enough for the fact that you came over here and shared this with me. You'll never know what you did for me. He walked me out, and Rabbi Yaakov says, I'm walking down the steps, and he says again, I would have never bothered you, but I could never thank you enough for what you have done for me tonight. The serenity you have given me, at least a little bit, by sharing this with me. I can't thank you enough for rushing over and telling this to me. He went back home. Shabbos morning, every Shabbos morning, he would walk an hour and a half through Jerusalem to visit his grandfather. That Shabbos morning, the 21st of Kislev, 1960, Chafalov Kislev, Tovshin Chafalov, Pashas told us, he finishes davening and he takes his trek to his grandfather, the great Tzvi Pesach Frank. On the way, he passes by the home of his sister and his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law comes out and says, Yaakov, today there's no reason to go. He says, Why? He says, your grandfather passed away this morning in his sleep. There's no way, reason to go home. No reason to go to his house. And he's standing there frozen. And he realized he wanted to wait. He thought maybe he should wait till Shabbos. But he didn't. He went Thursday. And his grandfather said, I can't thank you enough for rushing here and telling this to me. You'll never know what you did for me. Years passed, this is 1961, 1960, the end of 60, December 1960, 1977. Those of you who know a little bit of Israeli history, there is the Mahapach, the transformation of the Israeli government for the first time. The government goes from the left to the right. Likud takes over. Menachem Begin, who was in that position, in that position since 1948, is the prime minister of Israel. He hires Yaakov Frank to work for the government. Part of his work is to help build the Yeshuvim that were liberated in 67. And one of his missions, he has to visit America. He comes to America, he decides to go visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe. 1977. He comes into the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he introduces himself, Yaakov Frank. The Rebbe naturally says, you're related to Rebbe Tzvi Pesach Frank? He says, of course, I'm my grandson. He says, no, tagidli al-saba, tell me about your grandfather. And he shares with the Rebbe about his grandfather. The Rebbe says, give me another story. 
and then another story. And he's interviewing him, and he wants to know everything he, there is to know about his grandfather, Rabbi Pesach Frank, who was a very, very special and respected Jew. And then finally, he tells the Rebbe, you know, let me tell you one more story. And he tells the Lubavitcher Rebbe this whole story. When he was born, the week before the massacre, he saved his grandfather. Yaakov Berman was murdered. His grandfather blamed himself 30 years later in the trenches when he heard from the historian. He went back to his grandfather. His grandfather thanked him. One day later, he passed away. He finishes the story, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe tells him, he says, you know, that is why I always tell my students, and I always tell anyone who listens to me, that you never, ever delay a dream. When you have a dream to do something good, to bring love to the world, to bring light to the world, to help people, to build something, to increase holiness and godliness, the natural tendency is I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it in two days. I'll do it in a week. I'll do it in a month. He said, think about yourself. If you would have delayed your decision to go share with your grandfather just a day, he would have passed away and you would never forgive yourself for the rest of your life that you did not come to him. You would have now had the stone on your chest. Look what you did for yourself and look what you did for your Saba, for your grandfather. You went right away to share with him news that you would know would lighten his spirits, would remove a heavy boulder from his chest, would lift up his neshama, would embrace him and would give him a little, a little solace and comfort for this terrible guilt that he experienced his whole life, this hashamnu that he had. When you have a dream and you feel there's something, there's a fire in your bones, you can help people, don't delay it. If it's worthy to be done, do it right away. The Rebbe said as follows. If it's something that's not worth to do, then don't do it in a month either. And if it's something worthwhile to do, then do it tonight. Make the call tonight. Send the email tonight. Start the project tonight. If it's worthwhile doing it, do it now. Rabbi Yaakov Frank recently shared this. And when I heard him share the story, I thought to myself, wow. We never, ever know the full meaning of an event, ever. When the Baal Shem Tov said that statement, that when a leaf falls off a tree, it's also with divine providence. And the Baal Shem Tov was talking to his students and walking with them and they said, Rebbe, here's a leaf that fell off the tree. Where is the providence? It's just random. It was a hot day, like here. It was scorching sun. And the Baal Shem Tov said, lift up the leaf. And they picked up the leaf, and what did they see? There was a little worm. And the worm was burning up in the hot sun. And the Baal Shem Tov said, God brought this leaf to give this worm a little life. Don't think there is a mistake. But when we look at life, when we look at the world, there's so much chaos. When you look at your own life, there's often so much disarray. I can't see the full meaning of it. I can't see it. But the truth of Judaism is that everything is connected. There is a mosaic. There is a tapestry. There is a design. There is meaning and purpose in everyone and in everything beyond what my limited tools can comprehend. But I have to be able to be open to it. And no, this does not explain why this boy had to be killed. Let him stay alive and let the other Jews be saved. I don't know the answer for that. I don't know if anybody knows the answer. Maybe when Mashiach comes, we'll know the answer. But what we do know is, don't look at anything in isolation. 
There is a history, there's a past, there's a present, there's a future. And everything and everyone is interconnected in a grand divine design plan. And that is also true about your mistakes. And it's also true about my mistakes. And it's also true about the little tragedies in our life. And it's also true about the big tragedies in our life. And it's also true about those things that broke in our lives. And it's also true about those things in our lives that we have so much regret for. Think about if God would offer you tonight and say, my dearest Kindalah, okay? If you could press Control-Alt-Delete on three events in your life, what would they be? You don't have to all answer at once. But if you were given the opportunity, you know, on the computer, Control-Alt-Delete, if you don't know, ask your six-year-old, they'll tell you. <laughs> if you could click Control-Alt-Delete on three events of your life, what would they be? Well, many of us don't have a problem with coming up with what they will be, at least with one, and many with two, and many with three, and many with more. You know, what would have I loved to delete out of my biography? What would I love to delete out of my story, out of my history, out of my experiences? What? And you know the good reason why you would want to delete. And I want to ask you to think about it for a moment. And then I want to ask you to do something else. I want to ask you to go and revisit it and ask yourself another question. Is it possible that those three things, that on one level you want to delete, those three things really made you who you are today? And those three things can be channeled and allow you to become the person you're capable of becoming and you're supposed to become. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.